Would you join me in praying as we come to the word this morning? Lord Jesus, we've invited you in every way I know how this morning. Would you make your presence known to us, God? Not because we're worthy, not because of anything that we have done, but because you are a good father and you promise that when we gather to seek you, your presence will be known. So come, Lord Jesus. As we come to your word this morning, God, may you speak to the hearts of your people. May you do the work that only you can do. God, if the best we're in for this morning is some inspiring words from me, we should go home. May you come and speak to your people. May I decrease and you increase this morning. Be glorified, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we're continuing through the book of Mark, this is like, what, year four? I don't know. COVID is, was crazy through 2020, so it felt like much longer. But uh, we have finally made it to Mark chapter 9. We're on the back stretch, all right, the second half of Mark. And I have to assume it only goes quicker from here. I don't know that for sure, actually, at all. Um, but I want to recap just a little bit. Um, of where we were in Mark chapter 8, actually two weeks ago uh, was the last time we, we uh, came to the book of Mark. And Mark chapter 8 is a pivotal chapter in the book. Like not only is it the middle of the letter, but it's, it's the point that the letter had been driving to up till then. And it's almost like a hinge where the story swings on, on this one event that happens in Mark chapter 8. If you remember, there's, there's this pivotal question that Jesus asked his disciples in Mark chapter 8. Does anyone remember what that question is? Who do you say that I am? Remember, Jesus gathers his disciples, and first he says, who do people say that I am? And they give some really kind of high and exalted answers. You're Elijah, you're one of the prophets, you're John the Baptist. And then Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? And their answer is, you're the Messiah. And this is one of the first times where we see the disciples get an answer right. One of the first times where Jesus doesn't go, do you still not understand? He doesn't like call them you of little faith. They got the answer right. So then Jesus goes on to tell them what it means to be the Messiah. Do you remember? He says, we're heading to Jerusalem and there the Son of Man will be rejected, killed, and raised again in three days. And they start telling Jesus, whoa, 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 you got the wrong answer. That's not what the Messiah thing is all about, Jesus. The Messiah is a king. The Messiah was coming to conquer Rome, to put Israel back on the map. You can't die and do that. So the, he, Peter even pulls Jesus aside and starts to rebuke him. Do you remember that? The spot where Jesus says, behind me, Satan, you have in mind the things of man, not the things of God. And then he goes on to tell them, not only is that what it means for me to be the Messiah, that we're, I, we're going to Jerusalem, be, I'm going to be rejected, tortured, and killed. But if you're going to follow me, you have to deny yourself, take up your cross, and come after me. And it's going to cost you everything. So Jesus is trying to set the, the right tone here because they got Messiah, they got the answer right. You're the Christ. But everything attached to it, they got wrong. 
And so Jesus now is starting to explain to them what it really means to be the Messiah and what it really means to be a disciple of the Messiah. And he's trying to show them it's not what you think. So he gives them some of these hard teachings. It's going to cost everything to follow me. And then he says this in Mark 9, 1. He said to them, I assure you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God come in power. Okay, so he just goes on telling them, like, look, this is going to be hard, but here's the carrot. You just got the stick. Here's the carrot. Some of you even standing here, you're going to see the kingdom of God come in power. And let me tell you, this has been a confusing verse to me for years because I would read that and I would go, okay, they won't taste death. Is he talking about the resurrection? Like kingdom power? I mean, obviously raising Jesus from the dead. Is that, is that what he means by the kingdom coming in power? Is he talking about Pentecost? In Acts chapter 2 where the Holy Spirit comes on the disciples and, and the, the church is built. Is that what he means by the kingdom coming in power? The rest of Acts, we see all of this kingdom movement as the church is being built and moving forward. Is he talking about end times? Like when, when the kingdom is here on earth and wait, that won't make sense because they won't taste death first. And, so, and it's been this confusing thing for a long time. And I started to realize part of the reason why this is confusing for a lot of people, there's a lot of discussion about this passage. If you Google it, you'll see. Part of the reason is because our modern Bibles make it more difficult than it should be. Like you guys understand, we kind of talked about this in the beginning of Mark as we were launching in. Mark is whose account of Jesus' life? Peter's account of Jesus' life. Peter was basically dictating it. Mark was, was writing it down and kind of edited it together. But it was originally one long letter. Like when Mark was writing it, he didn't write chapter 1, verse 1, and start on through. You know that, right? All of the chapter and verses, all of the, uh, we call them little cheater headlines, like the story taglines that kind of break it up. All of those were added centuries later. The problem is the way that many of us have been taught to approach any book, and we apply it to scripture, is when at a chapter break, end of thought, verse one, beginning of brand new thought. When we see those little story headlines in there, we go, okay, old story over, new story starting. Chris, put up the, the screenshot. Like in my Bible, this is how this reads. Mark 9-1 is one verse standing alone all by itself. And then in verse 2, oh, okay, we're going into the transfiguration, but they're separated, and we have to be careful. We have to kind of train ourselves just because the scribes said this is the end of a chapter, just because the people, when they were writing, not all Bibles have that break there. Some have them together, some don't. It's all different. Just because they put that there doesn't mean that Mark was finished with his thought. Doesn't mean that Peter's story was over. And so... In, in all of the translations that I've read since I uh, was a follower of Jesus until now, I went and looked at them, and they all have that break in there. And so no wonder I was confused. There's this one standalone idea where Jesus is actually making an incredible promise, but I was trying to figure out without context because I, was, I fell into the thinking that we do. This doesn't have anything to do with what comes after or what came before. Otherwise, it would be part of chapter 8 or it would be in the story heading of the transfiguration, and I was separating them. 
And it's, it's a flaw that we make all the time. End of chapter, end of my day's reading, we close it, we come back the next day and kind of start fresh. But these were written as one continuous story. So we have to kind of train ourselves out of that. When you read a passage like this and it doesn't make sense to you at first, read what came before it. Read what comes after it. Read it in context. You will have a much greater understanding. So, so when I was coming to this this time, I read that verse and I was like, oh man, this has always been a tough one. And, and then I looked at verse 2 and I literally smacked my forehead. What is wrong with you? Verse 2 starts like this. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John. We'll get to the rest in a minute. He said to them, I assure you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God come in power. And after six days, he took Peter, James, and John up on a mountain. Six days after what? After he made that promise. Mark is tying these things together, and the unhelpful scribes decided, let's separate these things, and I bought it, hook, line, and sinker, without thinking about it. But in Mark, he's tying these together. He said, Jesus made this promise. Now watch what happened a week later when he fulfilled the promise. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves to be alone. He was transformed in front of them. Some of your Bibles probably say transfigured. And his clothes became dazzling, extremely white, as no launderer on earth could whiten them. Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, because he did not know what he should say, since they were terrified. A cloud appeared, overshadowing them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Then suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus alone. As they were coming down from the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept this word to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. Then they began to question him. Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Elijah does come first and restore everything, he replied. How then is it written about the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah really has come, and they did whatever they pleased to him, just as it, just as it is written about him. Okay, so there is a ton going on here in this story. Jesus did not make this an easy one that follows just this one linear path. They're covering a lot of ground here in this story. So let's start by what I hope we're kind of getting trained to do in picturing the scene. Using our imaginations to put yourself there. Sometimes it can become too clinical when we just read it as words on a page. But what would it have been like to be there? After six days, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up on a mountainside alone. If I'm one of them, I'm thinking, boy, this has been a weird week. Jesus called me Satan. He told us, not only is he going to die, but it looks like we might die. It's been an awkward six days. And now Jesus says, hey, you three, let's go up on the mountainside to be alone. Maybe he's going to apologize to us. Maybe he's going to explain some things. Because, like, we... We got the Messiah part right, and then he got mad. You know Pete's confused. 
He's too straightforward for this. And so Jesus calls them up on the mountainside. Maybe they're just expecting just a time of rest. We're just going to go have a prayer time, whatever it may be. I guarantee you they didn't see this coming. He takes them up on the mountainside to be alone. And then he is transformed in their presence. Mark tells us here that his clothes become dazzling white, whiter than is earthly possible. And over in Luke, in the same account, it says that even his face is changed in appearance. Jesus begins to literally shine and looks completely different, wholly other than he did as they were trekking up the mountain. And as if that's not enough, Moses and Elijah show up and they're just chatting with Jesus. Moses would have represented, like one of the greatest pillars of their faith, he represented the law, God's word given to Israel. That it's what made them Jewish was the law. And so Moses represented this incredible pillar. And then Elijah shows up and he represents the prophets, the men that God had used to call the nation back to himself. These are the two pillars of the Jewish faith. And they just appear and start talking with this transformed Jesus. And the next bullet point that I have here is Peter says dumb things. Lord, it is good that we're here. Let's make three tabernacles. Let's build a couple temporary shelters. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Because he had no idea what to say because he was terrified. I love Peter, man. How many of you would have just sat there with your mouths closed? Not me and Pete. Uh, we need wood, Lord. We're going to build you something. He's like, what are you? I'm, I'm glowing, Peter. I don't need a tabernacle. What are you talking about? They are so beside themselves because of the transformation that has taken place. Jaws hit the floor because this is not the Jesus we came up here with. It's terrifying to see the change that has happened in Jesus. Words don't cover it. He is completely other. And so Peter just starts stammering. Whatever is going through his brain is coming out of his mouth. And then as if that's not enough, a cloud envelops the whole mountainside. Again, Peter, James, and John, they were good little Jewish boys. They would have known what the cloud means. All through the Old Testament, God appears in a cloud, especially a cloud on top of a mountain. That sounds real familiar. That's when Moses came down with the tablets, and if they were scared before, and then they hear this voice out of the cloud. I think like a voice that would put James Earl Jones to shame. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And then the rest of the story is just proving that the disciples missed it once again. They have this incredible experience with Jesus. They're left shaken. They're left without words. And once again, they miss the point. Picking up in verse 9. As they were coming down from the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept this word to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. 
And then they began to question him. Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Elijah must come first and restore everything, Jesus replied. How then is it written about the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah really has come, and they did whatever they pleased to him, just as it was written about him. I told you this part wasn't easy and straightforward. The disciples see all of that, and they have, it's a pretty natural response. The end must be near. Jesus just showed up in power. And again, they're thinking Messiah means conquering king. Coming to show Rome what's what and put Israel back on the map. And after what we just saw, it has to be right around the corner. The day of the Lord is near. This is the thought going through their head. Because when they ask the question, what about Elijah? Doesn't, doesn't he have to come first? They're asking about a prophecy in Malachi 4. Malachi is the last book written in the Old Testament, and it's God's kind of like dagger uh, to the nation of Israel. It's the last time he speaks to them for 400 years, and he is just laying it out before them, turn around or else. And here's how he ends the book of Malachi. Look, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse. That The end, period. See you in 400 years. Okay, so this was fresh in their minds. They had been waiting for the Messiah to come, again, to kick Rome's tail. But wait, wait, wait. If that's going to happen, like, maybe even this week, Jesus, what about Elijah? It says he has to come first. And Jesus says, Elijah does come first and restores everything, he replied. That, that piece right there, from, from the best we can figure, this is scholars trying to figure it out. The best we can figure, Jesus is going, the thing you're looking for, the conquering king, that's coming. And Elijah will come first before that happens. Before the, the kingdom of God is established on this earth, before Jesus comes back as conquering king, he says, don't worry, that's coming. And just like Malachi says, Elijah will come first, but we can't skip what has to happen first. He says, how then is it written about the son of man? He's going, look, you can't have both. You can't have the conquering king, but it's also written that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be treated with contempt. That has to happen first. Understand a little bit about our theology. We believe that Jesus comes to earth twice. Once, 2,000 years ago, he came as the suffering servant to cancel the debt of sin by his death on the cross. We also believe that there will be a second coming of Jesus where he comes as a conquering king, heavenly trumpets blaring, riding on the clouds, bringing, as Malachi said, the day of the Lord. A day of rejoicing for those who follow him, a terrible day of judgment for those who don't. Jesus is saying that day is coming, but first this day has to happen. But first the Son of Man must suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah really has come 
and they did whatever they pleased to him, just as it is written. This is speaking about John the Baptist. John the Baptist came in the way of Elijah, declaring, make straight the paths for the Lord. And it even says in Luke, uh, the angel Gabriel tells John the Baptist's dad, he says, when your son is born, he's going to turn the hearts of the fathers back to their children and the children back to the fathers. he's, He's fulfilling the role of Elijah. He's coming, making straight the way for the Lord but this time the Lord is the suffering servant. One day, Elijah will come and make straight the way for the Lord, and he will come as the conquering king. But Jesus, again, is trying to get his disciples to understand that's not what the Messiah looks like now. First, the Messiah must suffer. First, the Messiah must be rejected, must be nailed to the cross, must raise again. And I love it. He puts it as clear as he can. And they come away talking, going, what do you think he means by raised from the dead? It's got to be a parable, right? It's got to be just, he's trying to teach us something. Again, I think if I'm Jesus, I'm probably going to get a new 12 at this point in time. These ones aren't getting it. But he is patient with them and walks with them. But let's go back up to what happened on the mountain. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, and he led them up on a high mountain by themselves to be alone. He was transformed in front of them, and his clothes became dazzling, extremely white, as no launderer on earth could whiten them. Elijah appeared with him, with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And I'll skip over Peter's interjection. A cloud appeared, overshadowing them, and a voice came from the cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. So the first part that happens, they walk up there with Jesus and he is transformed, or again, your, uh, your Bible may say transfigured in their presence. Transformed and transfigured are interchangeable words. Uh, that word is found a couple other places in the New Testament, but not talking about the transfiguration of Jesus, talking about what it looks like to follow Jesus. 2 Corinthians 3.18 uses it in this way. And we who with unveiled faces, I'm not going to get into the theology behind that, but essentially we who have had the blinders ripped off, we who no longer have a barrier between us and God, we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Those of us who follow Jesus, the veil has been ripped off we see Jesus as just like a reflection in a mirror, and we're actually being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory. Or some of your translations may say, from glory to glory. And all this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Romans 12, 1 and 2, Paul again says it this way, Therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but catch it, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is good, pleasing, and the perfect will of God. Paul used these words. Check it out. Paul wrote actually before the book of Mark was written. The Gospels, even though they come first in the New Testament, they were some of the last books written. 
because the people who had lived through it were starting to die out and they didn't want the story to get lost. So one of the last books written was the Gospels. So Peter and Mark working together here, they would have known this word transform. They would have known how Paul used this word transform. And this is just me talking here, but I think they may have sitting down and going, let's show them what that word transform really means. Jesus was transformed in our presence and we lost our minds. The degree of change, he was unrecognizable. And then we find Paul again, but we are to be transformed into his likeness. When we follow Jesus, the transformation that is called to take place in our lives should make us completely unrecognizable. Those close enough for us to splash our lives onto should be terrified at the change that they see taking place because that's not humanly possible. What we have done is we have said Christianity is about you working pretty hard to make a better version of yourself. What the scriptures tell us is that Christianity is about you being so in lockstep with Jesus that you are transformed to look like him to the same degree that he was transfigured on the mountaintop. Again, the disciples had been walking with him for three years at this point. They knew who Jesus was. They had seen some crazy things. And in a moment, they're left terrified and dumbfounded. When people look at your life, do they see a little bit shinier version of you because you're trying real hard? Or do they see the Lord who is the Spirit working in your life, bringing such transformation, they have to have an explanation. To the same degree Jesus was transformed, he's calling you to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Transformed or transfigured. Uh, in the Greek, it's where we get the word metamorphosis. You guys have probably heard this before. I won't even try to pronounce the Greek word. It's a weird one. But it's the idea of uh, a caterpillar turning into a butterfly. Something completely other. But it also encapsulates this idea that the butterfly was inside the caterpillar the whole time. That there's this change that happened on the outside that really what that change was was revealing what was happening on the inside. The, the idea of Jesus being transformed in their presence, it's not that Jesus stumbled into some power that he didn't have a minute ago. It's that what was in Jesus was revealed and it was awe-inspiring. And then what Paul says is the same thing should be true with us. The same power that was at work with Jesus is at work within us. The same transformation that happened to him is called to happen to us. The same change is on the inside waiting to be lived out. The word literally means transformed after being with. Not transformed because we work real hard. It literally means transformed after being with. We're called to be transformed by the Lord. In his presence, transformation naturally occurs. One of our core values uh, here at the Alliance Church is divine expectation and engagement. And here's the way that we uh, define that. We are, there were a people motivated by and hungry for the presence of God and that we partner with him in transformation. Where the presence of God is, transformation naturally occurs. Where the presence of God is not, transformation 
does not occur, which may explain some things as some of us take a deep look. We want to be a people so motivated by and hungry for the presence of God that when he shows up, we can't help but engage with him, partner with him in the transformation of our lives, of our communities, of our families. God is in the business of transformation, and he's inviting us in. Will we join him in it? So let me ask this question, and this is the time for you guys to share. Uh, as we say often, I am not the only one that the Holy Spirit can speak to or through. Uh, so let's take a minute and just learn from each other. What does it actually mean to be transformed to look more like Jesus? That we're being transformed into the image of Christ more and more, from glory to glory. What does that actually mean? Do we start wearing robes and sandals and we all need beards and, you know, my, I can't grow hair like probably Jesus could. But, like, it obviously doesn't mean we physically look more like Jesus. So what does it actually mean? Don't steal my thunder. You're not allowed to talk. You know where I'm going. No one listened to her. No, she said where we're going next. Yeah. Anyone else can steal my thunder. You guys are welcome, just not her. What does it look like? Because I guarantee you this, if we don't know, A, we have no idea what to aim for. We're never going to hit it. Or B, if it does happen, we're never going to notice, and we're going to move right on by. What does it look like? We talk all the time about where to be people who look like Jesus. What does that actually mean? Yeah. 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 Let me let you guys off the hook a little bit. This is a really hard question to answer. Um, I sat in a like weekend-long thing with a group of other pastors just trying to answer this question. And we floundered for a long time. Because we're all like, well, I mean, you, you just know it when you see it uh, kind of thing. Which meant none of us had any idea. Uh, and finally, in, in working through it, we came up with a pretty workable definition. And part of it is another core value that we have uh, as the church. One of the ways that we will see transformation, I believe, comes through discipleship. And so found in our um, definition of, of discipleship, Walking arm in arm in intentional relationships toward transformation, there's our word, into Christ's character and priorities. Much like Shirley said, <laughs> who has been a part of meetings where we created this definition. What does it look like to be transformed into the likeness of Christ? That my character begins to look like Jesus' character that my love begins to look like his love, that my self-control and ability to deny myself looks like his self-control. It's a fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, peace, patience, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That those fruits are born in my life. My character begins to look like Jesus. When people look at me, they don't see me, but they see Jesus loving them through me and that will cause them to take a step back because I am a selfish person. And if the best that comes of me walking with Jesus is I become slightly less selfish, who cares? People can do that on their own. But when they look at me and they see someone willing to deny themselves 
to love them, to put their needs first, just like Jesus did, they will take pause and notice. When they see that my priorities have completely shifted around and it's no longer me, me, mine, mine, but they see me giving of myself. They see me putting my family first. They see me serving in a community where I get nothing in return from it. And they go, wait, 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 wait. Why would you do that? Because that's who Jesus is. And he's transforming me to look more like him. When they see our character transformed to the same degree that Jesus was transfigured, they will take notice. When they see our priorities so drastically reshaped, it's as if they've begun to glow on a mountaintop. They will take notice. This is the kind of change, transformation, that those of us who follow Christ have been called into. It's not behavior management. It's not, hey, quit sinning so much. Just try to do better. You die, and Jesus lives through you, and your life looks so remarkably different, people won't even notice. This, is what, this should be the description of every single follower of Jesus, not just the apostle Paul or Peter. Peter was a goof, just like us. And his life is radically transformed, not because he just figured it out all of a sudden. He had a transformation because he had been with Jesus, and everything was different. So then a cloud appears, overshadowing them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Jesus is exalted in their presence. He is transformed, and the Lord speaks in power. And what does he say? Listen to him. Implied, do what he says. He didn't say, hey, you guys are nodding off. He's talking. Pay attention. Listen to him. Do what he says. Put it into action. So we have in Mark 8, who do you say that I am? You're the Messiah. And Jesus says, let me show you what the Messiah means. Let me show you the kingdom of God in power. And here's where we're driving this morning. The kingdom exists in power where Jesus is recognized as king and his authority is obeyed. This always leads to transformation. The kingdom exists in power where Jesus is recognized as king, where he is a biblical term, exalted, lifted up. You're king and I'm not. It's about your kingdom, not mine. Where his authority is obeyed. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Do what he says. And transformation is always the result of this. We talk about the kingdom of God, and it can be sometimes kind of like, what does it look like to, be, to look like Jesus? It can be this, well, I mean, it's kind of like maybe. Simply put, the kingdom of God is every day when I wake up and I say, Jesus, you're king and I'm not. It's about your kingdom, not mine. What you say I do, what you tell me to stop, I stop. It's as simple as that. Now, here's the thing. Transformation comes, like Paul said in 2 Corinthians, through the Lord who is the Spirit. Okay, Jesus, real quick, I realized I took back kingship again. Uh, I need your help. And his Holy Spirit gives us the ability to leave him on the throne and to do the things he calls us to do. And transformation is always the result. 
So let me end by asking these three questions. Uh, and we're not gonna discuss them like we do sometimes. We're just gonna create a little space for you to just ask these questions yourself. Uh, and then if you would just join us in singing at the end. Chris, go ahead and put the questions up there. Are there any areas of your life where Jesus isn't recognized as king? Are there areas where he keeps kind of tapping you on the shoulder and going, hey, remember, I'm in charge, and you're going, not here. Don't touch this one. This one's mine. This is about my kingdom above yours. It can be ugly. Are there any areas in your life where Jesus isn't recognized as king? Ask that question in prayer and allow the Lord to answer. Are there any areas of your life that you're living in disobedience to the king? Where he has clearly called you to take a step, or maybe he has clearly called you to lay something down and you've responded no. Or maybe you've responded not yet, which is code for no. Ask this question of the Lord. Lord, are there places where I'm living in disobedience? Because if so, I'm holding the life-giving transformation that I desperately need at arm's length. As long as I walk in disobedience. And then this last question, as you look at the last year, ask the Lord to reveal areas of transformation. This is going to do two things. A, it's going to give you time to praise, time to celebrate all that the Lord has done. Or maybe for some of us, it's going to point out, I haven't seen any. Which leads me back to the first two questions. Are there areas of transformation in your life over the last year? Where I'm, I'm creating a pretty big window. If so, praise the Lord for what he is doing. If not, see question one and two. Did you guys all hear that? It's both yes and no. None of us have lived this year perfectly with all transformation, or the answer doesn't have to be then no transformation. It's probably a mixed bag. So celebrating where we've seen it, but also going, Lord, where have I dropped the ball in some of these other areas? And just allowing him to speak into that. So I'm going to ask the music team to come. Uh, I'm going to pray for us, and then we're just going to create a little space and silence for you to just respond to the Lord uh, and then we're going to sing just a really familiar song, I Surrender All. If when we start to sing, if you're still praying, you're not to a point where you can say, I surrender all, I would invite you, don't start singing. Keep doing work with the Lord. If you're at that spot, then I would invite you just to join us. So let me pray. Lord Jesus, we are in desperate need of you to do for us what we are incapable of doing for ourselves transforming our hearts, God, changing us from the inside out. At our heart, at our core, we are rebels. We seek to fulfill our own kingdom. We seek to fulfill our own wishes. And in and of ourselves, we will always choose disobedience to you. We need you to lead us through the power of your Holy Spirit, God, to recognize you as you are. Lord, if we need to have a mountaintop experience where we're, we're knocked flat on our backsides because we see you as you truly are, then come, Lord Jesus. Lord, if there's areas where we're stiff-arming you because we don't trust you, because we're not convinced that you're good, that you can handle that part of our lives, whatever it may be, speak your truth.
And Lord, may we just celebrate and give praise for the areas where you are working, where you are transforming us from the inside out, where you're renewing our minds. May we always be quick to give you praise and glory and honor for those things. Our good king who can be trusted with everything. So Lord, would you just speak to us now uh, as we ask these questions, wherever we may be, would you just speak to our hearts, I pray.